Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, bringing you the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive startups and leaders. Subscribers get a new episode every Thursday at 6pm, and I'm your host, James Somerville. Hey everybody, this week we're talking about diabetes and we're talking about social platforms. And my guest is Arjun Panasar, who's the founding CEO of Diabetes Digital Media. So Arjun founded diabetes.co.uk, and what a domain name that is, whilst he was still a student at university in 2003. And that was after his grandfather's quadruple heart bypass and diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. Since then, Arjun's led diabetes.co.uk to become the world's largest diabetes support community. And it's got over 1.2 million members across all of their platforms. So Arjun's got a first-class honours degree in computing and artificial intelligence, and that's from Imperial College in London. And his research basically looked at intelligent systems and improving user experience, and that was through collaborative machine learning and data mining. So today, Arjun leads the development of DDM's evidence-based digital health solutions, and that's delivered through insurance companies, health agencies, and governments worldwide, including the UK's NHS. Arjun's also written a book called Machine Learning and AI for Healthcare, and that's out in February. And you can find the links to that, all of DDM's website, socials, and Arjun's, as well as our own and my own, in the description of this episode. So, guys, have a look at that. Leave us a comment, leave us a message, and enjoy the episode. So Arjun, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing today, mate? I'm not too bad, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, dude. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Arjun? So I'm in our offices at the University of Warwick Science Park, which is mysteriously actually located in Coventry. <laughs> very nice, very nice. How wonderfully confusing. Good stuff, man. So obviously we've had a we've had a quick call beforehand and, and I knew you a bit before we've sat on panels and things together. So I know quite a lot about your background. But for the benefit of our listeners, why don't you tell us your story about how uh, how you got going in diabetes and, and your kind of background and up until when you started the company? Sure. So it goes way back to two thousand and three. I wow. was that is quite a long time ago. And, and yeah, it makes me feel like a dinosaur, really. Because <laughs> I think sort of it's a bit like dog years. It's a bit like dog years when you work in digital technology. Um, but my, my grandfather was diagnosed with, a, with type 2 diabetes in 2003 after he went through a quadruple heart bypass. And, and that, that actually Ooh. came on sort of very suddenly. Um, he wasn't sure what to eat and I'm from a very multicultural family. So he's, I, I'm sort of, sort of, um, British born Sikh. He's, he's, he, he's a Bengali who has been living in the UK and America for the last 50 years. My grandmother is, is sort of British Caucasian and we, and food is something that we have celebrated in our family, you know, ever since I can remember. Mm. And I'm, it's, it's, I'm not afraid to say that I'm also his favorite grandson. And so he asked me <laughs> what he should eat. Um, nice. And, and, I, and I had absolutely, the truth is I had absolutely no idea, but this really cool piece of tech called Facebook had just allowed Imperial College to sign up. And so students from Imperial were, were now able to access this awesome website called Facebook. And this concept of user-generated content was, was for me really interesting. Yeah. So as I mentioned, my, my, sort of my, uh, my master's was in AI and, and 
for me, it was how we can use the data. And at that point, it was really unstructured data. But but maybe, you know, if we can pull people together, uh, I guess as a concept, maybe, you know, there'd be some value to this. And so we put online what is now the world's largest diabetes community. Uh, that's diabetes.co.uk. And today we welcome around about 40 million visitors a year. And across our platforms, we have around about 1.3, 1.35 million members that use not only diabetes.co.uk, but then use other interventions such as the low carb program, Grow Health, and the hybrid program which are other interventions that we create so I suppose our journey has been has been quite a long one so for the last 16 years really we've been working with data and over the last seven eight years it's definitely sort of migrated into big data and real-time data and we've essentially been using the data to give us our bias so following what people have been saying what the concerns that people have been having and then creating evidence-based digital health technologies, which essentially to sort of you and I are multi-platform apps. So whether it's iOS, Android, Alexa, VR, and then providing them to people and then making sure that we're, we're writing the results of, of these technologies up because I think the space that we're in right now is, is, is really innovative and, and healthcare is, is beginning to embrace the benefits of big data, benefits of digital health. And so it's a really, really exciting time to be part of it as well. That's awesome, man. And that was a, a rapid and efficient run through everything that, uh, yeah. that you do. You mentioned really, really early on in that, that you did an, an MA in AI. I'm, I assume it's an MA or an MSc. So you did a master's in. in uh, so it was, an, it, it was actually a master's in engineering. I remember all of my friends were doing an MSc and, and I had signed myself up for a four year undergraduate course at Imperial, mm. not knowing that I wouldn't receive a bachelor's. Um, but, uh, but essentially I, I graduated with a, a master's of engineering in artificial intelligence and computing. And what was quite interesting, I think, sort of when you contrast what I was learning then to today is the applications of, of AI in particular, the things that I was learning 15 years ago are only really coming to the forefront today. That's in, so in, interesting. In, and I, I think absolutely. So if you think about the fact that we're celebrating things like data linkages, you know, data linkages are a data science piece. They're certainly not an AI piece. However, when you consider the fact, you know, recommendation systems, you know, things like Netflix, the way that we recommend uh, or nudge people within platforms, sure. those, those kinds of, you know, collaborative filtering, those, you know, those kinds of pieces, you know, we learned about those 15 years ago. It's only now we have the data available, you know, in real time in order to wow. be able to execute those. So I've always found that quite fascinating. And, and I'm, you know, I'm always enthused to listen to, when we have students who can, you know, who to come into the office or, or people who have completed their degrees who come into the office because what they are learning, I'm sure in the next five years, if, you know, if not less, we will be applying to, to healthcare. Um, but the, but the pace has been a bit slow to kick off really. Sure. I think what's interesting there is actually that, that the academia 15 years ago was actually able to predict accurately the things that would be commercially relevant 15 years later. They probably thought it'd be a, a bit sooner than 15 years later, but clearly the academia was at least predicting what was going to be real in the commercial world, which is quite cool. Yeah, I guess, I guess back then we were learning the theory and the only thing you didn't have was the data. And if you can, you know, there are data sets that, you know, they're absolutely massive and they're clinical, et cetera. But, you know, just the pervasiveness of things like 3G, 4G has just meant that everyone has this data exhaust that we're able to connect into. And so, you know, and so, you know, from that perspective, when I learned about cloud computing, it wasn't actually called cloud computing, it was called grid computing. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, and so it's just funny. I think the market has to, the market has to figure out a way of sort of embracing those technologies and, you know, and it's fair to say, you know, I'm sure you've seen exactly the same thing that really in healthcare, those technologies have only been embraced over the last five years, if that. 
Absolutely. So, it, you know, it has been, um, it's been a very cautious adoption, but now, you know, it's, it's, you know, there is no AI winter. It's really, a, it's really the summer of, mm. of digital tech now, isn't it? It is. It is, mate. So tell me about the early days of diabetes.co.uk then. So talk to me about th- that, that bit between having the idea and then making it a reality. And I'm, I'm, I'm really interested then in the bit right after that, which was then the user growth and seeing the potential because as a as a data scientist by background obviously your currency is getting the data so i imagine getting a get, even getting a domain name like diabetes.co.uk and then just seeing the traffic come in was quite exciting from a data point of view so talk to me about those early days oh wow so yeah absolutely so i think back then domain names i think today you can buy for one you know and a pound 99 yeah. back then they used to cost 200 300 pounds wow and and i think it was quite an interesting space because there was obviously things, you know, the dot-com crash had sort of had just finished really. So we're talking, you know, 2003 and, and the concept of building brands online wasn't, wasn't flavor of the month or the year anymore. And so we we went back to basics and, you know, when we were considering what we could, the domain name we could use for a diabetes community, it just made sense to to see if (laughs) diabetes.co.uk was available. We actually, we actually offered the domain name to the charity and they didn't want it at the time. And so we decided, <laughs> yeah, you know, so it's funny how things work out. And, and so as a result, we, we were building the, the website on diabetes.co.uk. I remember the first post was actually about whether people with diabetes and, and this chap happened to be a, a, a chap with type one diabetes said, can people with diabetes eat oranges? <laughs> and, and it's just fascinating because food wow. has always been at the helm of, of a person with diabetes life because, you know, everything pretty much affects blood glucose levels. But what we know is people feel most empowered to, to, to work um, and, in, and change their, you know, their, their dietary preferences or, you know, the, what they're eating. So I, I just thought the data was, you know, has been fascinating because really food has been a, has been a, has been a, a, a recurrent thread in, in everything we've seen. And so it was, it was really fascinating to see that people wanted to know more about food and so you know that was really the beginning of of diabetes.co.uk it then moved on so i actually graduated in 2006 so the website had been live for around about three years and we had probably around about thirty thousand members by that point and they were completely organic so they were back in the days where if you wanted you know where ppc was very big so mm. you would you know you used to market in you know within particular sort of bought search engines in order to bring traffic to users. Um, however, we did you know I was there was a student that really was sort of a, a a hobby that I had for my bedroom and the data nerd you know I'm I'm a very proud data geek and yeah. it's fair to say the data geek in me was extremely excited at the prospect of what we could do with the data. My master's research was actually on how we could pull people together and improve their experiences and in my in my research it was it was more focused on how we could use things like the internet and we could use this makes me sound really old but use things like location and user preferences you know demographics where you are in the country etc in order to then personalize your experience it was it was a fantastic piece of research i really obviously you know i really really enjoyed that and um and it it won a few awards for for sort of the impact that it had but what was all sort of what we've really done over the last 10 years is or is try and unpack some of that learning into what we do in healthcare. So, you know, recommendation systems, the way we can nudge, we can move people on, so on and so forth. There are still elements of, of you know, of what I was studying, essentially, that still exists in the business today. Um, but essentially, that sort of, you know, we, were, we realized that actually if we engage with the community 
uh, and we and we listen to the data and we don't have a bias medically we don't have a bias sort of in personally we, you know we have a data bias um by having a data bias you you remain extremely objective and so as a result what we realize is that people wanted more and more structured guidance when it came to food so in 2000 and 11, uh, my, our chief operations officer, Charlotte, joined and her background was in behavior change psychology. Her interest was really in how to get people engaged from a digital perspective and maintain their engagement. Mm. And what we knew from diabetes.co.uk was that we were the biggest social medium for people with diabetes on, well, in the UK, if, if, if not the world, there was a piece of research that was conducted by University of Edinburgh that went to demonstrate that diabetes.co.uk as a platform was a more active social medium compared to Facebook and Twitter for people with diabetes. And so it kind of gives you an idea of the amount of data that we're generating, but, but also the value of it. So we went, we went back to basics and we engaged with sort of, I think by 2011, we, we had around about 60,000 users in the platform, again, organic. And we created a seven day meal plan. And that was off the back of lots of user feedback, which was, I'm, I'm not quite sure what to eat. The food, you know, the food and recipes that we were suggesting weren't particularly low, low carb, but they were reduced sugar. Um, mm -hmm. And we put that seven, seven day cookbook out and we launched it on the 1st of January, 2012. And on the 3rd of January, 2012, we had received 115,000 downloads and our servers had crashed because we hadn't expected the, you know, really just how popular wow. the seven day meal plan would be. And I remember that was the first time I thought, you know, we need to make sure this is scalable. Um, you know, and that wasn't the word I was thinking back then, but you know, it was more like I need to get these servers back online. Um, <laughs> you know, and we got the servers back online, but what was fascinating was we used that as an opportunity to engage with users. So I think because we were the first digital platform for people with diabetes here in the UK, and because we are so sort of, you know, we're very privileged to have the, the voice of, of people with diabetes on the platform, and we've always considered it a privilege. And, and as a result, we, we were very honest with users and said, we just didn't expect this level of popularity for, for this cookbook. What else would you like? And we received feedback from around about 20,000 people with type one diabetes, with type two diabetes, and 80% of people said they wanted more structured guidance when it came to food. So we worked on a 90-day meal plan, and this was becoming more structured, and it was certainly sort of reduced in carbohydrates. And we had 13 million downloads in the, in the space of January the 1st, 2013, to December the 31st, 2013. And we realized then that people wanted structured information and when we looked at the download patterns when we looked at what people were actually engaging with food you know they people felt empowered to change their food first over anything else activity sleep mental well-being physical well-being food was was where people felt they could really make a difference but also was somewhere there was lots of confusion they weren't sure what to eat when to eat it they were receiving differing advice they would receive some advice from the healthcare professionals they would go to the internet and they would google it and they may end up at a forum or on a piece of information that they, you know, that contradicted what their doctor had said. And I remember when we did a survey in 2012, we would communicate with users and ask them whether their, their healthcare professional supports, you know, them being on the diabetes.co.uk platform or where they support mm -hmm. their, their sort of their, their approach. And in 2012, only 30% of healthcare professionals supported their patients using a, one of our interventions. But then if you fast forward that to today, um, we see around about 95% of healthcare professionals, you know, support their health, you know, their, their patients nice. embarking on one of our platforms. So it has 
six years ago, we were called disruptors. And I think it was disruptive back then. Uh, but now sort of, you know, the bodies that be and the regulation and also understanding has, has caught up. And, and it's a big problem for, for the healthcare professionals, mate, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I'm just, well, I'm just thinking then, like, it, it's, really, it's really interesting, isn't it, the fact that it, for food and, and, where, and where food and diet sits in terms of medicine, because even I'm thinking now, you know, back to medical school, we, we had a, a metabolism module where food was just, you know, a small part of it and you learned a little bit about it, but, not, you know, not particularly. And even, even when you qualify and you, and you start treating patients in, in primary care or, or, you know, sometimes even secondary care, like food, food and diet, it, it comes second to, to drugs, right? Because as, as a medic, you're, you're, you're often seeing a problem and you're thinking, what drug can I can I use here if it's diabetes, you know, metformin or acarbos or, you know, or any of the glycoside or any of the other kind of fancy ones, you know, and, and where food and diet sits, it's that kind of bit where, you know, when the patients go home, that food and diet bit, they sort of do themselves. And I guess for patients that, that have historically celebrated food, like your family, when you're just telling people to like clean up their act and, you know, eat a bit healthier and all these different things, of course, that's going to be incredibly difficult, not only because they don't know, but actually that's not even what they might want to do because they've just built a lifestyle around certain types of food that have fundamentally made them happy and been parts of their lives. So I can, I can completely see how back then even, you know, a website that was there giving people the slightest bit of advice would have, would have done well. But especially if you're doing things like 90 day meal plans and, and even if you've got beyond that, you know, certain elements of, um, I don't know, different faiths or different diets or, you know, all these different things. I imagine the, I can understand, let's just say the amount of engagement that you had in 125,000 downloads or whatever it was. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, we were quite shocked by the response that we had from, from people. We didn't realize that they would be so engaged, really, in, in the messaging that we were sharing. Um, but, you know, but no, absolutely, they were. And I think we've been, because we have really, you know, at least I feel I've grown up sort of in, in the spotlight to some degree, always been answerable to why we are providing the services we provide and to whom, and, and particularly when you engage with, with bodies like the NHS, as a commercial organization, you know, you need to demonstrate your integrity and your ethics. And I think the people that speak best for our services are the people that we help. And so it, it's been a fantastic journey in, mm. in developing those applications. And, and when we move into things like the low carb program, just the way it's helped redefine the concept of type two diabetes. And you're absolutely right. You know, food is, is so instrumental to people's lives. It's a, it's a, it can act as a reward. It can act as comfort. There are yeah. so many emotional sort of links with food that we, you know, you would be, it would be ludicrous to say that, you know, what we're trying to achieve is anyone sort of following a particular approach. But I think what we, what we, what we want to offer is patient choice and we want to offer the ability for patients to educate themselves. And what we have realized, if you can do that in a compassionate way, and if you can do that in an inclusive way, and if you can do that in a way where you can, really optimize you know that that the readiness for change as as my colleague charlotte would say you can really create the perfect circumstance and when you when you really augment that and you place that into a digital ecosystem the personalization of that experience is is fundamental to ensuring engagement and i think that's where we feel our strengths begin really because you know that per hyper personalization is is what embodies engagement you know you you know you have read the research just like i have you have apps that have been downloaded by 
150, 200,000 people and are used by 35 people, you know, after six weeks, the yeah. research is littered with, with disengaged apps. And Indeed. I think our, our sort of, our methodology has been extremely agile. We want to fail extremely fast and because users are brilliant at telling you how you can fail or, or what failure is. And it's about being, being able to in real time, essentially optimize what you're providing for, for your users. And because we've been able to do that over so long, we have really been able to refine the products or, you know, the solutions we've been providing. And, and that has, is helping to create this blended, this blended model, because it's not just about digital tech and it's not just about real world sort of physical healthcare. It's about the merger, the, you know, the merger of those and, and how one can support the other. It's so true, mate. I think on the last three or even four podcasts, I think I've mentioned this now about, having the humility to consistently pivot and consistently listen to your users and customers in order to define what you do next. I mean, I think I mentioned this last week, but there's, there's been a few people on this podcast recently that when they were early on in their careers, they had this, they were part of a big company that got completely and utterly blown out of the water by a new innovation because the, the company was just too slow to, to move with the times. And so it completely wiped out like listed companies and things. And so those, those entrepreneurs have then gone on to be constantly innovating and it's like at the top of their mind that they just don't want their own company, you know, innovated out of the water, so to speak. But yeah, yeah no, I can, I completely agree that you guys, you I mean, you just seem really good at that. And I think it's definitely standing you in good stead because as you say, you've even, you've even got this blended platform as you, as, as you call it or, or blended approach where, as you say, it's not just digital, it's all these different things. So I guess, I guess your, your product in a way is the community and is the platform that you've built. What are the features that you've got within that product, let's say? The product. So I guess community is really where we start and, and community, I think the basic features are you sit within a peer group of people who have similar goals. Yeah. And, and that really is the fundamental place that we start. So we, we did a piece with Royal Holloway that was published in 2017 and they engaged 1500 members of the forum and wanted to understand what is the benefit of being part of a patient community such as the diabetes.co.uk forum. And they, their conclusion was that patients as the result of being part of the forum feel more empowered about their health condition. And that was actually the first time in research that the term empowerment had been used in relation to a community. And what was, what was fascinating about that is they went a couple of stages further to explain what empowerment meant. So empowerment for patients with diabetes meant that they felt that they had better control or improved self-efficacy in managing their condition. They had a perceived improvement in the quality of life. And as a result, felt less anxious about managing their diabetes on a day-to-day basis. And if you consider the fact that that's just pooling people within, you know, it's just like a Facebook group, really. It's just a group of people who have very similar experiences, but they are in an ecosystem or a, a platform that they feel safe in. They, you know, and, and I think there's lots more than, you know, so it's really, I can really trivialize it and say it's, it's, it's really at its heart, a, a, you know, a forum, you can post threads and you can, and you can answer and you can leave sort of emotions and interactions on, on those posts. But actually it's, it's so much more on the basis that the people that we have had in there and, and sort of the, the personalities and the, and I guess the architecture that then supports that change. So just, just to give you an example, after six months, um, you know, from baseline to six months to a year and 18 months and onwards, we, would, we engage with users to see whether their health has improved and, and how we can improve the forum. And at the six-month point, one in two 
people who joins the diabetes forum states that the A1C has improved. That's not clinical data, bear in mind, but I think what's fascinating is just by joining a community, you can improve your, um, at least your self-reported health. And then when we move into things like the low carb program, what we have done is really not only use the community, but then use other sort of novel and innovative features in order to create sort of really a, a sort of an all round ecosystem. Mm. That's awesome. You're very research led by the sounds of it as well. And 15,000 people is not a small trial like that. You know, that's, that's a decent amount of data. And as you say, it's self-reported, but the fact that 50% of people have had their HbA1c, which for those people that don't know is essentially a measure of how tightly controlled your glucose is. If they're reporting that as, as better, it's, it's definitely significant, isn't it? And I love the fact that that you've you've quantified that word of empowerment because actually i was going to ask you what do you mean by empowerment but actually improved efficacy of management quality of life improvement and decreased anxiety again these things are not to be snubbed at especially at the scale that you guys are clearly achieving this i mean how many members have you got across your platforms now so we've got 1.3 at last count 1.37 million people across our platforms and they're roughly spread between the diabetes.co.uk forum which has around about 320,000 members we have the low carb program which has around about 428,000 members i think on last count we then have our grow health platform which probably has around about 5,000 members currently and then we have our hypo program platform that has another, ooh, I think that's easily around about 275,000 people. Um, and what's fascinating is as you sort of pull those together you know, and look at how they use, you know, different services that we provide, it is really fascinating because you do, I, I call it sort of the datification of, of, of healthcare or datification <laughs> of people. But, you know, that data trail is, is fascinating because we can see, we can see dependent on what you engage with, how your health changes it may not improve it may you know it may it may not get worse it may stay the same um but we can really see sort of based on those touch points how people and you know are living their lives and, and their health status as well and and the connectivity of digital and offline um is really you know is really sort of is what we're looking at achieving because we you know we just don't want there to be a gap you know i think in yeah. order to make the you know in order to really to make this blended model and, and augment and truly augment care it really has to be seamless, just like Uber, you know, and just like, you know, those best experiences. Um, and that is what we, you know, and that is what we're striving to achieve. So tell me about low carb then. Low carb. So, so I, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. So Dr. David Unwin is our senior medical advisor and is considered to be one of the two world's, two of the world's leading experts in therapeutic nutrition or, or essentially type two diabetes remission using a lower carb approach. And he actually found out about the low carb approach around about seven years ago from a patient who was actually on the diabetes.co.uk forum who went to visit him. Mm. So this, this particular patient hadn't been into surgery to, to see Dr. Unwin for two years and Dr. Unwin called her in. And when he tells the story, he says that when she came in, he didn't recognize the lady. And the lady <laughs> said, I've been reading this forum, diabetes.co.uk, and I don't think I have my type 2 diabetes anymore. And wow. Dr. Unwin was, was not, um, this was the first time that in his clinical experience, he'd, he'd actually seen something like this. Uh, and he's very sort of evidence-led. So he took all of her markers. He did A1C, took sort of fasting blood glucose. And lo and behold, this lady was in type 2 diabetes remission. And Dr. Unwin then started his first study on 70, oh, sorry, 19 patients with prediabetes. 
And he put them on a lower carbohydrate approach for, I think it was 13 months. And at the 13-month point, 17 of those 19 patients were in pre-diabetes remission and, and sort of had improved their A1C. And essentially what we did with the low-carb program is we digitalized that information and that support and, you know, and that behavior change experience in, into what we call the low-carb program. So in the low-carb program, you receive structured education and behavior change support. And the education is personalized to your disease profile. So if you have type 2 diabetes, pre-diabetes, obesity, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, if you have polycystic ovarian syndrome, or you're just looking to optimize your general well-being, we provide an education stream grounded in nutrition that helps support that. And we also then provide the behavior change resources. And, and essentially what that means is you get to speak to mentors in order to help keep you on track. But then you also receive things like recipes, meal plans, you know, th the kind of things that you need in order to sustain behavior change. And we, we, we've been conducting a study with the University of Michigan, looking at a thousand members who were sort of chosen at random. And we were following them for three years. We currently have our two-year outcomes pending publication and our one-year outcomes went to demonstrate that 71% of people were, remained engaged in the platform at one year. But more importantly, that if you completed the program, you lost around about 7% of your body weight, you reduced your A1C by 1.2% and 39% of patients who started the program with type 2 diabetes placed their HbA1c under the type 2 diabetes threshold. But then we also looked at secondary markers and, and you know, and when I come to do the deck on the low carb program, this is by far my favorite slide. <laughs> we, then, we then talk about medication reduction. And yeah. when people start about, you know, I think on average 1.2 medications is what people take when they join the low carb program. And when you finish the low carb program at a year, you see that 40% of patients have completely eliminated medication from their regime. 60% who start on insulin, either reduce or eliminate insulin from their regime. And one in four patients, and exactly, you know, at one year, it's 26%, are in type 2 diabetes remission. And for us, that's, it's, it's awesome to be able to sort of provide this kind of service from what is currently a really a digital-only solution. So we're currently not providing one-to-one, -one, you know, advice or, or coaching, or you don't speak to a doctor. And, and when, we did sure. the, when we did the study, it wasn't a blended model. So sure. what we've been experiencing since our NHS deployments is that when you work within a blended healthcare system, the results can be far more impressive. And so when we, when we, when we did our primary NHS um, pilot with Wincanton down in Somerset, a health coach sat with patients on a weekly basis and they went through you know, the, every you know, the week lesson for the low carb program um, in, a, in, a, in a group setting. So I, I've forgot to mention but the, the low carb program starts with a 12-week implementation phase which essentially means that every week you log in and you watch a video um, of your digital mentor who in the UK is Louise who talks you through how to implement a lower carbohydrate approach and so in Wincanton they did this in in groups of around about six or eight and then they input their their data within this into the system there were 452 patients, I believe, in, in the Wincanton uh, surgery or in, in the Wincanton practice. And the idea was to put 10% of these patients into type 2 remission. So there was a great appetite from, from the healthcare team. Yeah. We, we provided the platform, I think, to around about 63 patients. And we saw a 97% enrollment, which, which from what I've seen uh, from other statistics is, has been, is unseen for diabetes education. Yeah. But more importantly, 86% of patients completed all 12 modules. 
and that is you know that far exceeds our our sort of our published study um, that was published in JMIR Diabetes for the one year outcomes. But it just went to demonstrate that if you put people in with a digital solution, mm. you really can improve health outcomes. Uh, and each and every single person who was on that study who completed the the full twelve week program lost weight. And the average weight loss was eight kilos. And so, and so the, you know, the, the, I always say that, sort of, you know, it's, what, what a tremendous opportunity to improve patient and population health. And I think that is, you know, that's where we start really is that, you know, we want to offer patients choice. We know that a lower carbohydrate approach for type two diabetes, pre-diabetes is considered to be the most evidence-based approach for, for improving glycemia. And, and that was, you know, that was from a consensus report from the American Diabetes Association earlier this year. And what's really awesome about the low carb approach is that it's been noted that it's the approach that can be most individualized to your eating preferences. And that's exactly what we've done. So we have something called the recipe system. I like to call it recipe flicks, uh, but a recipe system that essentially allows users to scroll through a library of 1500 regularly updated recipes that are tried, tested by our team of dietitians and nutritionists. And they're essentially tailored to exactly what you want to eat, to your culture, to your dietary preferences, to your nice. allergies, to your budget and time. And so we have, and so hyper-personalization for us and the use of nudging and behavior change, you know, priming and so on and so forth really is, you know, at its peak in our recipe system because the sustainability of, of not only apps, but behavior change, you know, the, the key is you need the right tools to support that. And recipes is the key in nutrition. I think what you've done super well is the adoption bit and I'll go, I'll go into more detail on that. So basically my thoughts when you were talking then went to the fact that there'll be purist entrepreneurs listening that are really going to question the scalability once you start to involve people. You know, if you talk about the low co the low carb program, a digital therapeutic, you can then start start to talk about daily active users, a nice hockey stick graph and absolutely, you know, you know hardly any outgoings in order to scale it. Right. And as soon as you start involving people, well, actually the scalability goes down and it isn't as good from a, from a growth perspective. However, in healthcare, the adoption bit is so important that anything that you can do to increase the adoption is such a better long-term play from a business perspective in health. It just is. And I think just the foresight from you guys, and in, and in fact, it, it's not guesswork at all. It's the fact that you're so heavily science and research-based that you knew the behavioral theory, you know the behavioral economics behind all of this to know that if, that, well, first of all, you know that healthcare is essentially all behavior change. And secondly, you know that in order to, to make that as sticky as physically possible, fine, you can use the digital element to make most of it scalable and allow people to do it in their own homes and take it away and stuff. But you guys know that having a human there is going to increase that adoption bit through all the things that we know about accountability and, and just human-to-human -human interactions and all those different things. So I just think that bit's so important. And I think there's so many people that can learn from that, that that actually when you think about digital therapeutics and getting digital interventions to people, it doesn't have to be purely digital. You can increase the chances of success by thinking about the adoption, by putting in some sort of human element. I think what you did there is awesome. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think as we move into the future, I think I was very naive actually, sort of maybe about five, 10 years ago, thinking that you know, digital tech could, could augment 
I think we all were. I think we all still are a little bit. To yeah, be perfectly yeah. honest, I, I think this. Uh, I completely, yeah. I completely feel that on a daily basis. You know, I, I buy into the hype quite a lot as well. Of of like, oh, this could change everything. This could be just digital. People can do this in their own homes. They can be accountable to these other mechanisms and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, maybe it's just getting a bit older and stuff that I've started to realise that even when th- you know, if things go wrong with my own health, I just want to speak to a human. I just, I just want to, I just want to have someone tell yeah. me what to do. Yeah, yeah, and, and I don't think we're going to be able to kick that from humanity you know yeah absolutely and i think you're absolutely right maybe it is the the aging process that makes you realize that that's not necessarily possible as you imagine but you, you know i think you hit the nail on the head the future is certainly blended and i think that the longer you sort of engage with with these bodies you realize that it is sort of success is how you blend these in mm. a way that you know that uber have done for when you want to grab a taxi and to yeah. do that for healthcare is no is no is no small feat and so, you know, integration of your clinical record, making sure that you've got access to it at all times, being able to, to use that record whenever you see fit, whenever you would like access to it, you know, being able to verify the authenticity of your health record and so on and so forth. I think that, yeah. that piece and how you then blend it with, with offline care, which is typically not as technologically advanced as, you know, as the innovators who are sitting on the other side, you know, yeah. how you then blend, you know, it's a, it's an absolutely huge piece that probably has more to do with relationships than it does than it does with <laughs> digital tech. Yeah, I completely agree. And actually, it starts to you start to enter conversations about the quality of care then as well, because actually, the human might not be necessary for the totally scalable products but actually by putting them in there you might up the quality of the products and therefore your outcomes get better and again your stickiness and engagement gets better and all these different things and i'm i've never actually thought or heard of uber described as that blended model before of tech and human but it totally is obviously because you're just using the tech to call a human who sits in a car with oh, yeah, yeah. you know i've never actually considered it like that and it's it is it is very true and i suppose to an extent you know that's what telemedicine is isn't it it's just the tech in between two humans and and stuff like that but that is super interesting so just moving on a bit then just because i, I want to make sure i cover this bit as well because on our previous call you mentioned your grow health platform as well and that's all about modifiable risk and so explain to our listeners what that means and explain what you're doing with grow health because i think this is really cool sure so with the low carb program we we we're looking at nutrition and it's fair to say that is extremely nutrition focused as you can tell from from the label However, <laughs> what we realized is we, with the, I suppose I forgot to mention, with the low carb program, the results and, and the accolades we received were, were sort of, you know, spread internationally. And as a result, we were able to become the preferred digital vendor for two of the world's top four reinsurance companies when it comes to diabetes solutions. And nice. over the last three years, we've been working with these providers really to understand what not only insurance companies want, but what you know, health agencies want, what governments want, what they would like to achieve when it comes to population health, because you know, healthy aging, population health, you know, you name the term and it's you know, it's thrown around industry, you know, yeah. it's, you know, like um, like no one's business. And and so we we realized with the low carb program that nutrition um, is a fantastic place to start. However, there are other areas of health that that immediately sometimes improve when you you know when you improve particular aspects of your lifestyle so as an example when we launched the low carb program we we were looking at movement and and and, and activity and we realized that after seven weeks of being as part of the low carb program people were moving for 49 minutes more than they were at the beginning of the of the of the intervention and so 
there was no activity element in the low carb program. But, it, but as a result, we felt as though there was an, a bit of opportunity to sort of extend that and in order to you know, further improve people's health. And so with Grow, what we really did is went back to basics and we're looking at all aspects of modifiable risk. So that's not just nutrition, that's also sleep, that's activity, that's physical well-being and that's mental well-being as well. And so what we did was really create a holistic education program that engages patients with you know, how they would like to optimize their health. Would they like to focus on nutrition? Would they like to focus on activity? Would they like to focus on sleep? Uh, would they like to focus on, on mental well-being? You choose where you would like to start and then we curate the experience around you. So we still take in a fair amount of data and we take the data in in order to really personalize that experience. But again, you receive education that's tailored to your condition, it's tailored to your dietary preferences, it's tailored to you know, anything that you essentially can put in, you know, what you would like to eat, what you dislike to eat. Um, you know, I think I mentioned allergies. The way you use the system, are you retired? Do you, are, you sort of, are you in employment? All of these markers we know has an impact on engagement and on also on health outcomes. So by going back to basics with, you know, really with these lifestyle risk factors, we're looking at reducing the amount of processed foods people are eating, improving uh, physical inactivity, looking at stress and trying to improve inadequate sleep. And, and essentially these, these lifestyle risk factors are, you know, a huge cause of hyperinsulinemia or insulin resistance. And typically there's around about five diagnostic criteria that, that are, when diagnosed are treated and their waist circumference, triglycerides, raised triglycerides, mm. reduced HDL, raised blood pressure, you know, raised fasting plasma glucose. But the conditions they're linked to are, are, are plenty. So it's not just type 2 and pre-diabetes and obesity, but it's hypertension and it's heart disease and stroke and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, some cancers, dementia, polycystic ovarian syndrome, inflammation, kidney disease, depression, anxiety, there are so many conditions linked to these diagnostic criteria that we medicate, but medication doesn't solve the problem. So you can't achieve type 2 diabetes remission from a drug, yeah. but you can do it from behavior change. And so with GROW, we've really gone back to basics and we've created the ecosystem from the bottom up. So if you would like to focus on food rather than activity, we can do that. And it's then tailored to your ethnicity, to your preferences, to what you want to eat. But if you would like to engage in activity first, we provide a tailored activity, I guess, plan for you based on whether you're a beginner, uh, intermediate, advanced or disabled. And, and we basically work with you and the way you use our digital architecture in order to then further nudge you into the platform. And we've been very lucky to work with the Swiss Re Behavior Economics team in order to really optimize that journey from start to finish. So from the moment that we engage with you via email, via text message or in-app, before you engage in our platform, all the way through to completion, we've been, you know, been looking at the data in the hundreds of thousands to ensure that we, we really curate that process. Because I think for us, you know, we pride ourselves on engagement and we pride ourselves on, on improving people's health but we can't improve people's health unless they engage. And so, you know, that really is the crux of, of the engagement piece. But then from a provider side, we, you know, we have these real time clinical dashboards where you can see where in the world these people are. You can engage with them. You can speak to them. You can send a notification to them. You can email them. You can get into their app and send them, a, you know, send them a message to come and see you. If you, if you're in, um, say if, you, if you're a physician, for instance, 
Um, and so the, the architecture is, is an extremely sophisticated architecture that we've been lucky to build with, with the likes of University of British Columbia, um, Swiss Re and, and you know, Warwick Medical School. So it, it really is sort of a system having learned from 420,000 people in the low carb program and having learned from all these providers that we've met to create this platform that is applicable for the general population. It still provides you with very specific disease specific education that's been approved by, by Kismet to be sort of, you know, it has endorsed as self-management education. So, you know, we're really creating this clinical experience in, in, is in what we would call an app, uh, but we would actually treat it like a medical device. So it's really upping the, you know, upping the bar for, for health apps, but also upping the bar for the way that we engage and provide people with experiences that, you know, engage and, and maintain them. Such a comprehensive answer. I, mean, I don't even know what to ask you after that, other than so for the so for the insurance then. Well, actually, for the patients then, let's start with them. It's it sounds awesome because again of, of this hyper personalization element. So depending on whatever it is they want to work on to to drop their to drop their risk and increase their health, they they can choose that element and then through this program that that in inverted commas risk that the insurer might see of them the insurer then i suppose can watch that risk go down as they then get healthier and i suppose that's why the insurers are interested is that right yeah yeah you know i think there's we were we were looking for partners to work with for, for quite a long time and there's very few people who or very few organizations that are interested in the maintenance of, of good health yeah uh, and so i think what we found with insurance companies is that they have a motivation to keep people healthy for longer. Mm. And, and I thought what was quite interesting is, is the you know, NHS wants to achieve that and so do insurers. Uh, and from an NHS perspective, it's all about reducing costs and, and improving efficiency. Yeah, and from an insurance point of view, it, it's, well, and it, but it's also insurers have this, um, this appetite to, to do good. Uh, and yeah. so, you know, from the people that I have engaged with, you know, it's, they love the, the low carb program. They love the, you know, the message of hope that we are providing and, and they're all on board, uh, and, you know, and, and they're both trying to achieve the same thing. And I think, you know, in the, there is certainly a Venn diagram that has an overlap in terms of, you know, what we're trying to achieve both in, you know, in the public system and in, in the private system as well. So, um, you know, it, it is, and the way that we engage users, whether you come from insurance or whether you come from the NHS is actually very similar. Um, and, you know, and I think one of the key parts, just going back to what we were saying earlier is you're fundamentally placed in a community of people who are trying to achieve the same goal as you, yeah. but then supported with more, you know, with more structure. So in diabetes.co.uk forum, for instance, you could talk about EastEnders in the forum if you wanted to. You know, it's, it, you know, it's a very open forum. Whereas in the low carb program forum or in the grow health forum, the conversation is, is, is slightly more rigid. So it's, you know, it, the perimeter has been reduced to some degree. So you're only really talking about nutrition or well-being or, or sleep or activity. And as a result, sort of engaging within those communities sort of catalyzes or expedites that knowledge creation process. And so what we, you know, what we find is the longer you engage and the more you engage with the platform, the better your health, you know, the better your health improvements. Dude, I think what you're doing is awesome. I, I love the fact you're so research-led and research-focused. I think it's really got you to a point in the company where you've ended up building products that actually solve real problems. I think your focus on behavioral change and behavioral economics is 
not only fascinating but clearly works as well and i think i think what i've what what i've learned from this podcast what i'm taking away is i've i've now got actually a definition of what patient empowerment means with um improved efficiency of management quality of life and decreased anxiety so i now know what patient empowerment means which is awesome I, that that element of hyper personalization to everything that you do increasing engagement i think that's definitely something that i've learned here and also that element of of blending the tech and the human that we've talked about to increase adoption i think that's definitely a point that i'm going to take forwards after this and before we cl- we close out mate i just want you to tell me a little bit more about your book because you mentioned it really briefly on the previous phone call um, and you, you mentioned it was for healthcare professionals that, that don't need to know about maths and stats, but you sort of teach it for them and what they could do with data. But just tell us a little bit more about the book just before we close out. Sure. So I, I kind of really take people back to university with me, to be perfectly honest. So we, <laughs> we go back to the theory and, and the practical applications of AI, it's fair to say. So I, I engage with many people within the NHS. And I remember this one chap telling me that AI doesn't exist in diabetes. And he perplexed me because I, I, was, I was convinced that he was joking, but he said that with an extremely stern look on his face. And so I thought, I, I wrote this with, with him in mind. And, and essentially, I'm, I've just tried to give, you know, those decision makers who, who see the word AI and machine learning sort of banded about everywhere, you know, and almost like a guided tour of actually what machine learning is. And I think it's, it's really key that we, we differentiate the differences between I don't know, machine learning and AI and, and data science and, you know, and, and to sort of take it apart and what can we achieve? What do the architectures look like? You know, what data do you have? You know, everyone wants to get involved in an AI project, but data is, is really the key piece. You know, does more data mean better data? What are the challenges, you know, when it comes to data? And then I suppose from an applications point of view, we then go in, I'm really, really a big fan of the ethics of AI. And so really looking at the implications of using this data, and how in the future it may be used to improve patient population health. Um, and, and again, just you know, how we can evaluate these models that we put into, into the real world, how we can analyze them and, you know, and how we can iteratively and continuously improve them. And then sort of end with a, with a load of case studies of, of, of really interesting, innovative companies and people, academics that I've, I've been very privileged to meet. And they share their story of how they've redefined either their sector or redefined a problem by looking at the data and, and, you know, and really creating AI and, and machine learning solutions. Um, and, and essentially the, the idea is that if you are stuck with, with you know, if you, have a, if you have some data or maybe if you don't have some data, but you, you know, you're stuck on you know, how I can get started in AI, particularly from a healthcare point of view, the idea is that you wouldn't just know the sort of the theory, you'd, you'd know a little bit about the math that would also be behind mm. it and also how to apply it. So we talk a little bit about the, you know, the, if you're a Python programmer, for instance, um, in, order, in order to solve those problems. So going from the very generic concept of the problems that we're looking at solving to, you know, to the very pedantic problems that we have, you know, that companies like myself have experienced and how we've solved them as well. Awesome, man. It sounds like a must-read for, for healthcare professionals, but actually also for budding health tech entrepreneurs and actually probably health tech entrepreneurs that have companies in this space. I'm sure there's plenty to learn about how machine learning can actually come in disrupt or positively or negatively the sector that they're in and i'm sure they want to be on the right side of it so sounds like an awesome read dude so listen i can't believe we're run out of time man that's gone so quickly and i've definitely learned a heck of a lot this week but the way that we close out these podcasts mate is that i hand back over to you to just summarize a little bit about yourself a little bit about the company and then to close us out with any asks of our audience so take it away 
thank you for having me. My name is Arjun Panasar. I'm the founding CEO and head of AI at Diabetes Digital Media. I also wear a, a number of other hats uh, or turbans, and so I'm, I'm also an advisor to the University <laughs> of Sheffield Information School. I'm also a fellow to the NHS Innovation Accelerator. We're part of Digital Health London, and, and I'm also a non-exec for, for a number of startups, helping direct them through the maze that is healthcare. And if there's anyone in the NHS or, or public, private organization that is looking to to improve the health of their populations or people that they care for, we'd, we'd absolutely love to hear from them. Our web address is ddm.health, so that's https um, forward slash ddm.health, and my email address is arjun, that's a-r-j-u-n at ddm.health if anyone would like to get in touch. Awesome, pleasure having you on, dude. Awesome, thank you, it's been fantastic. Hey everybody, and thanks for listening to this week's episode and making it all the way to the end. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all of our socials so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.